0: Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere.
1: Today, we talk with Simon Sadler. He is the chair of the design department at UC Davis. His research focuses on the question of how design has shaped us collectively and individually, and what alternatives we might have available for the future. He teaches the history and theory of architecture Design and urbanism, and works as an affiliated faculty with multiple graduate programs, including performance studies, transportation studies, and the environmental humanities supercluster. In this episode, we talk about a wide range of ideas from an attempt to define design, the resurgence of a countercultural movement, and the dance between maintaining control and letting go. We hope you enjoy.
0: Welcome, Professor Simon Sadler. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a great honor. It's a great idea for a podcast.
0: We hope so.
1: (laughs) Could you start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself, your story, how you got to Davis, and what got you interested in design, architecture, and history?
2: Sure. Um, So I've been here a shocking amount of time already. I've been here about 20 years, and I came here, you can probably tell from the accent, I came here uh, from the UK and I, as an undergraduate, I did history. I was a historian and um, I loved history. I still love history, but I remember uh, sitting in a history seminar in this fantastic 18th century building in London. I was at the University of London and doing an amazing seminar on the history of South Africa. But I remember looking around the room thinking, I wonder if it matters where history happened. Like, is there any kind of relationship between these historical events that I'm studying and the places that they took place? And that got me interested, again, in architecture and design. And I say again, because at school, I'd loved architecture and art and design, and I'd spent a lot of time in the workshops and I spent a lot of time drawing. But then after a while, I thought, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, does anybody need this stuff that I'm making? And then I came from a family that was like, well, you know, is, is art and design a real sort of thing to be doing with your life? Go, go and do a, a proper subject. So I went and did a proper subject, but I still had that itch I wanted to scratch. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I, I was getting, if anything, more fascinated with architecture and cities, I was living in London. I was a Byte messenger. I was zipping around. One reason I was a Byte messenger was because it allowed me to go into the buildings. <laughs> and usually I could just put the envelope down on the front desk. But if it was a building I was interested in, I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, this has got to be personally delivered. <laughs> and I'd go right to the building, like, looking around. And uh, then there'd be somebody at the other end, a bit surprised at this pointless thing had been like hand delivered to them <laughs> but I'd got to see mm-hmm. behind the front door you know yeah. Um, so yeah I was in love with cities history and I just had this sense that before I went and got um, a real job I wanted to spend a bit more time studying and I uh, found uh, a graduate degree I could do in my hometown of Birmingham in England that was just a one or two years history of art, architecture and design and uh, went over, signed up. And I think almost like at the end of the first seminar, I'm like, oh, wow, this is if I have to do this for the rest of my life, this is just fine. I cannot believe I'm being allowed to just sit around talking and thinking and learning about this incredibly interesting subject of history and design. And Then I came here. I I forgot the second part of your question there. Then I came here, and um, uh, I was ready to sort of move on. I had a taste for adventure, and I thought, well, I'm going to take the first job in the world uh, that I can uh, that is outside Britain. And I was so very fortunate to get a job at the University of California. I'd always been fascinated by California and the United States. And, um, after I got here as well, um, it was a, it was great timing because a lot of my research got more into the question of California. California is so important in world culture and world design, but at the time, not a lot was really understood about what California's role is in, in design. And uh, so when I got here, I was able to spend more time thinking about that and looking at that. And what was it about those design classes that captivated you? Yeah, that's a great question. As, a, as I say, I think it was partly about being able to put history and design you know, together in one place. You know how it is if you study history and if you're doing a course where it's just like sort of events and dates – And it does get a little bit abstract. Um, So being at a sort of position history in space, being able to think about, well, to what extent does like the space that we live in and the things that we use actually affect those events? How does it feel to be in a certain time in a certain place? Could that feeling have been different um, so so it's an incredibly kind of romantic thing uh, to be to be studying that particular first class, it was very small. I think as well, you know it was because that seminar, we talk a lot about diversity, mm-hmm. but that program that I ended up in was kind of you know pretty diverse. I'm a middle class Brit. Um, I think a lot of my other, st- uh, lot of the other students on the course were more sort of working class. I liked the way they brought a sort of skepticism yeah. to all of it. Uh, the faculty people that I was working with were great. My immediate supervisor back then, um, she was fascinating. She. Uh, was an expert on the history of architecture and design who became, this was, we're going back here 25, 30 years even. And she was an expert on architecture and design who was becoming more and more interested in sustainability and ecology. Mm-hmm. And she was doing the work. She wasn't just sort of taking it as read that, you know, sure, you know, sustainability is going to work. and And I remember her sort of drilling down into the data and concluding that, we were kind of screwed. And she wrote a major article about um, whether sustainable design was gonna kind of like save the world and what the problems were with it. And that, incredibly, is uh, still an article that's assigned, I assign it. But she herself um, decided that her work as an academic was probably done. And uh, she resigned and went off to run an organic farm somewhere in Wales, went kind of off the grid, and was basically never seen or heard of again. (laughs) I know this because I've wanted to look her up and say, you know, thanks, you had such a huge impact on me. And, um, you know, here's what I'm doing now, and it's in large part because of you, and I can't find her. And I've asked around, and it's just like, yeah, I don't know, she went to a farm in Wales, I think, that's it. (laughs) That's hilarious. So you've
0: mentioned the word many times. And I want to ask your definition. What is design?
2: Okay, well, now you've gone and asked. That's the one question I can't answer. So, okay. (laughs) So here's the thing I'm going to tell you. Design really kind of has no definition. Now that's hilarious, really, because right now I am actually the chair of this design department. So I'm trying to chair a department that I don't understand what it is. Um, And the reason for that is that um, design is potentially kind of like everything. So if you were to think about where we are in this office right now, it's all designed, right? I mean, we're at, you know, we've, we're talking into this, uh, this gear or sitting on chairs, we've got a table, we're in a room, we're in a building. All designed. Um, And then you could say, well, look, we've got a view out of the window here. Um, That's not all designed as well. Well, kind of is. I mean, all of those trees were placed. That's all landscape architecture. And then in the middle distance, we've got one of the first bike lanes in America. Uh, So that's all kind of design. So, all I can see here now is design. And then as I look up into the sky, it's just like, well, I suppose we didn't design that, but we certainly changed it. If you think of design as purposeful change, now that we've kind of changed the climate as well, I mean, this sounds like I'm trying to be sort of smart or something, but it is the case that um, we live now more or less inside an artificial world that we made. Then you could say, oh, that guy's completely spun out. I mean, you know, surely, you know, he doesn't sort of say to students like, uh, you know, design is everything, but it kind of is. If you think about the knock-on consequences of even small design decisions, it is gonna connect and connect and connect through that chain and through that accumulation of the artificial. To being everything So, you know, we cannot design everything And so that then leads question leads to questions about how much we can really control That uh, is a matter of like a lot of introspection for designers. There's all the unintended consequences of what we do as well But I would honestly say that you know right now if when we're thinking about design um we are really Ultimately thinking about the consequences of human action now that is a Very 21st century thing to be thinking if you wanted to go back and back and back through the word It really design really gets going as um, as an idea and as a discipline Really only about 500 years ago Um the the word comes from the Italian word for drawing, disegno, mm. and that's in the Italian Renaissance. And, of course, if you think about it, there's like a burst of what we think of as design then with people doing altarpieces and frescoes and ceilings and... Furniture and the architecture the cities, right? You know, that's probably how we think of design at root all of that um, design culture but um, Yeah, so it's a really so I think probably the best way to think about uh, design is that And this is maybe like any discipline, but it's certainly the case with design. It's kind of constantly evolving like I I will go down to the grad studios say And look at what they're working on and when I'm asking them like really, what are you working on? I'm not that's not some sort of like rhetorical question. I don't understand what they're working on (laughs) They've got something going in the corner And I come away realizing I've just been shown a new way a Way that's new to me for thinking about looking at and changing the world Um. The, there's, there's another, I know this is going to be so abstract as well, but I do find this one quite useful. There was um, uh, a theorist about, in the mid-20th century, a guy called Herbert Simon, who was a psychologist and an economist. And he got, he was teaching in a, in a school of design and he got really frustrated by the fact that nobody seemed to know what design was. And he ended up doing a really important book, which he called Sciences of the Artificial. And that sounds really glaze over. But if I put it like this, most of my colleagues at the University of California over in the sciences are studying nature. In design, you study the artificial. Like it's one thing to understand nature, but to understand what we are doing, that's really interesting and really complicated. So that's another way of thinking about it, that it's it's the artificial.
0: Are we not nature though?
2: Oh. You're really <laughs> this is you're drilling down deep into this. <laughs> now then. So probably um So probably a lot of design has been based on the assumption that we are in charge of nature. That we're masters of nature. Even that word, master, it's gendered, right? If you think about the history of architecture, the history of design, it's dominated by white guys. Italian Renaissance on. Guys who want to be in control guys who believe they can be in control, guys who believe that they're rational, that they're above nature, that they can improve nature. It's a sort of supremacy, and there has long been different sorts of attempts to push back on that and to say, look, we're part of nature. Um, And I think we are retreating Really rapidly from the hubris of the idea that we're above nature and that we can master it But honestly that was probably an assumption. Let's say you look at that um, Massive plans for new cities. You can see them right now. For example in the Middle East It's like you know you could say, well, this is a crazy place to be building a new city, don't you think? It's a desert. And it's just like, yeah, we got this. We're going to pump in water. We're going to get solar panels. The sand will turn to, um, you know, f- 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 to grass. We're, we've got it. And we'll build grids, and you'll love it. But um, I'm just out of a talk today in the department, a lunchtime talk uh, from... Uh, an exciting new design researcher who we were hearing from and something that she was doing was reintroducing us precisely to this connection to nature. Um, she uh, looks at biophilia, which is our, you know, natural inclination for nature. Like, you know, looking out the window, it does feel good looking at the, the clouds today in Davis are amazing. They're Big, they're majestic, and I kind of feel pretty. You yeah, f- feel alive seeing them, and that's kind of biophilia. We're drawn to nature. That's the idea. It comes from evolutionary biology. The fact that she's using a word like that shows that we're kind of moving back towards that sense that um, we're all in this together. We're we're all connected, and her design uh, is uh, stuff that even. Though we spend a lot of time indoors and are isolated, if you think about the sort of long pandemic shut, uh, lockdowns, um, she and her colleagues in her lab are looking at ways in which um, design can try to stimulate some of the same responses that we get from nature, but to do it artificially. And she was so, showing us, for example... You know, do you remember how in the in the pandemic, loads of people went out and bought dogs? Yeah, to sort of <laughs> I did that. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And uh, um, I was reminded of that because um, in her lab, uh, they were they made they were making these really cute robots, and they had this great, this lovely idea of uh, letting kind of robots do their own thing instead of. This reminds me of a talk I heard. Um, from uh, colleagues at UC Davis a few years ago over in the Feminist Research Institute. They said, you know, this is one problem with design. You just, what you really want is mechanical slaves. If you think about how so much design kind of makes us into ogres, into just these horrible people, like you open your phone and you shout at Siri telling her to do do things for you... <laughs> So this is like the bleeding edge of technology where we try to design technologies that bring out the better side of us, more empathetic, less bossy. And a part of that could be to allow a robot a bit of free will, a bit of hanging out time, doing its own thing. Um, And maybe in that, even with our relationship with machines... Uh, To just be a little more natural, a little more sort of organic, and not to constantly assume control.
0: You said a lot of very interesting things. When it comes to assigning hubris to the historical Mm -hmm. white male in design, I'm curious how much you can assign that perspective if it's not conscious in the person executing those ideas, Mm -hmm. because when we're talking about the hubris being, I'm conquering nature, I'm not part of nature. I also look at nature and see so much of that same type of attitude. If you look at what's more arrogant than a lion going out, killing, Mm -hmm. like looking at every gazelle, that's mine. Mm -hmm. I can take that. Everywhere you look in nature, I think you can argue, oh, that is just another animal attempting to conquer mm-hmm. another one, or a animal thinking that plant is mine, or a plant thinking oh, those nutrients are mine. Mm-hmm. And I don't see how the conversation of you are oppressing a robot with zero free will and mm-hmm. zero emotions and... That like, how, where does that take our conversation yeah because I think that hubris can push innovation the arrogance to think I can create a city in a desert where there's nothing or I can go to space has led to so many technological advancements that actually improve human life so having like conversation focus on robots and their
2: <laughs> their, feeling. their feelings their feelings I tell you this is really ca- uh, I this is barreling towards us, there are already uh, folks who are talking about artificial intelligence having rights, <sighs> and uh, and uh, and to, to to get in front of that. <clears throat> so this this uh, this conversation, this is what I love about design. It's pretty quickly gone off the deep end, and I should say to anybody who is thinking about doing design, you know, like don't worry. We'll also kind of like. Show you how Adobe Illustrator works. <laughs> <laughs> and there's studios, and you'll you sort of cut things up, and you'll make some cool stuff. Uh, but this is kind of more my end of things. I'm not a practitioner. I am an historian, and that kind of gets into theory. Something maybe we could get back to is, honestly, one reason I'm interested in uh, design and architecture is it's like politics by other, by other means. other hmm Right? I mean, so who gets to decide to design a city, right? Or to build a city? So it's, it's, it's another way of talking about politics. That's kind of my gig. But if you were to go to just down the corridor to the studios, you'd see uh, people making cool stuff. And if that's your thing, you'll be like, yeah, I want to go and make cool stuff. But even making cool stuff, it's like, well, okay. As you make the cool stuff, what sort of world are we making? And... What you were um, just saying a moment ago about, like, nature—that in itself is a certain read of nature. Like, you know, that the lion's going to go and kill the gazelle. Therefore, well, look—I mean, that's one read. But right now, um, we are taking seriously the idea of a decoloniality. And by that, I mean, can we imagine design being done not with the mindset of somebody like me, who grew up in Birmingham, England, birthplace of the Industrial Revolution? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, where, in the name of progress, we spent 200 years belching out carbon into the atmosphere. In retrospect, maybe not the smartest thing to do. Can we reimagine design, for example, from the perspective of um, somebody outside the Industrial Revolution? There's a gorgeous book that I'm reading at the moment called Low Tech, and in it, um, the uh, the person who's written it, who is an architect designer, has uh, done this gorgeous study of ways in which people, mostly in the global south, not entirely, uh, especially sort of indigenous peoples, you know, who have maintained customs and traditions that could go back hundreds, even thousands of years, how they have a completely different approach to the air, to water, maybe to lions and gazelles, than one that I might assume. And you find yourself reading and looking at this stuff and after a while thinking, do you know what? Um, I think they've got something here. I would actually quite like to approach the rest of the world, to approach nature in a way that I don't immediately think, um, I don't know, do I want to kill that? Do I want to eat it? Do I... uh, do I want to possess it, Um, that there is potentially another way of being. And that design, we know this for sure. I mean, people have lived differently throughout history. That was all design. Therefore, we know there are different ways of relating to you, me, the rest of the world through design, Um, I was just uh, reading the other day, and you might have heard about this as well. Um, This was an article from New Zealand, but it's not the only instance where a river has been granted rights legally. That's in New Zealand. That's a colony once of the British Empire, where kind of people like me were sent out to sort of like uh, push Maori people off the land and say, well, you know, we need this now for sheep farming. It's obviously a more pro- progressive thing to do. And they'd be like, uh wh- why? What? And yeah, we're just going to cut all the trees down now, and uh, we're going to divert the river to go and irrigate. It's all design, right? And I think even... We now might sort of look back and say, yeah, maybe not. Maybe that wasn't the best idea, honestly. Uh, changing the climate probably wasn't the best idea. So with this new mindset, what initially is like, wait, what? You, you gave rights to a river? Like the river is a person? With the same standing in a court of law as me? And uh, guess what? Yeah, and, and why? Well, are we the only species with a right? Are we the only entity in the world with rights? Why shouldn't the river just be allowed to be a river? So, as I say, if you're a designer, you can just... Well, I say just. I mean, you can do incredible things, I don't know, with Adobe Photoshop. But you can as well be thinking about um, what sort of relations you want to have with the rest of the world through the things that you're making. If all of that that I was just saying was super abstract, let's try this one. When you think about the Adobe Suite, when you think about the sort of relations between us that it's going to create, are you sure those are the ones you want? Are you sure that you want to relate to each other just by pictures of you posing with new stuff, posing in places around the world that you wish you'd visited, that this person has, and then you feel envious, and then why doesn't my body look like that person's body, and why haven't I got that money? And Right? That is a design technology that is creating a certain sort of relationship with us. But you could be doing it another way. You know, you could be spending some of that time. I just got um, a message from a former student saying, just saying that um, there's going to be kind of like an underground party tonight. Um, Great DJ. It's still technology. But it's going to create a completely different relationship between people. It's not going to be Instagram. Oh, no. Where it is, is even a secret. But if you're there, it's gonna be pretty intense and you're gonna be with other people, right in that space, right in that moment. Still design, but a different way of relating. And probably where we are now in the discipline of design is we're being a bit more reflective about the world that we're making And the relationships that we're making with lions and gazelles and rivers and you and me and everything. Yeah. Sounds like just being a lot more intentional. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So we, we talked about how we
1: might be able to think about design differently or think about our perspective with our relationship with other things differently. Mm -hmm. And I feel comfortable with the idea that I can Delete Instagram. I can change the way that I interact with things personally. But to get that to scale seems difficult in the sense that to do things that Instagram does in terms Mm -hmm. of interacting everybody, you almost have to appeal to the envy, to the greed, Mm -hmm. to the things, to the jealousy, to the things that make people want to stick to it. How are some ways that you can still have these deeply personal
2: shifts in perspective at a wide scale? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, you know, it's something that we think about a lot is, can things scale? And I do sometimes worry that, you know how being in university has a sort of utopian quality? It's like coming to the sort of ideal. Yeah, it's a bubble. It's a bubble, right? And you know the campus is nice, and you sort of like, oh hi, sort of wandering around, smiling, and and then people outside the university are like, yeah, well you wait until you get out into the real world. And of course, if you're an academic, it's like, yeah, I'm not interested in the real world. I'm just going to stay. It's going to stay in the bubble if that's okay. I'm, I'm I'm fine in here. But you know, design. If you do design, you do have to think a little bit about about what comes after, and. And you can sort of worry a little bit, I think that um, what you're doing is spending a lot of time doing and talking about the way things should be, uh not the way they are. So I don't immediately have kind of like an, a, a response a response for you. It's actually a tradition that I think in the discipline of design is that we've given people a space where they can kind of step back for a moment and go, you know, in fact, in our graduate program, very often we've got professionals returning, if you like, from the field. I had a student a few years ago who um, had a great job at Apple. And she told me once, I think it was a particular meeting that she was in. And she just sort of thought, yeah, no, no. Actually, I, I, I don't really want to be involved in this right now. And um, and so she came back to college for a couple of years, stepped back. Actually, over here, we're in the office here, and over here, I can see a cushion that she made for me with my name on it. Explaining that cushion would take a long time. Maybe it suffice to say that in her graduating project, um. This sound this is actually more serious than it sounds because you might be thinking gosh she came here for two years and made cushions but she was really really interested in um the relationship between objects and mental health hmm. and the cushions were sort of part of um a, a suite of objects that she was making um to make people sort of feel better uh, the cushions originally had like electronics embedded, embedded in them and they would say affirming things to you <laughs> you know if you're kind of lonely, who's to say I mean maybe you need a a a, a cushion to, to squeeze and to say good things to you so she's back out in the real world um so scaling up well can things scale up well, you know potentially we can make a ton of cushions you know uh one of the dreams i think of designers is that, especially through mass production, we can scale up that way by making sure everybody gets a nice cushion. And if that sounds crazy, if you were to think about the way that um, it's super problematic, but I'll get back to that in a second, the way in which mass production allowed stuff that was inconceivable, that so many people ended up getting a car. Um, I once remember hearing a stand-up comedian laughing about the way people complain about air travel. It's just, I've been sitting here. And he said, "Uh, Wait, you're in a chair in the sky. That is a miracle. So... Through things like reproduction, mass production, maybe we can scale things up. If you were to think about it as simply as this, what if you come to this design program and you're shown two ways of making the same thing? One that's more sustainable, one that's less sustainable and if we've trained you right when you get back out there you're going to choose the one if it's economically viable or whatever that's more sustainable small change that scales up i'll give you a fairly hard instance i've got a coll- i've got colleagues over in the lighting lab which is part of the design department just think about the scale the scaled up impact of their energy-efficient light bulbs over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And if you don't believe me, you just look up the numbers. The, re- the, the reduction in carbon and energy use, they're doing things over there that you probably aren't even aware of what is going on. Where, for example, lighting quality is improving. They are paying attention to the relationship between artificial light and your sleep cycles.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Eye strain, this, that, and the other. So that's stuff that can that can that can scale up. And so it's not whole I mean, like, okay, you come back to this little safe space where you sort of think about the way the world should be and should rivers have rights and whatever. But look, what if afterwards when you go out? You think about that thing about rivers having rights and you think twice about the relationship between production and waste.
0: I think that's starting to touch on where I see it being way more viable. Mm. Where you don't assign a river rights because that's going to turn off 80-whatever percent of the population. Just like, okay, shut up. But if you <laughs> if you start talking, that no, we need to make sure... We protect this river because that river impacts 100,000, 200,000 right. million people. That assigning the river to the right isn't really about the river. It's about all the humans and other animals and You've everything else that's going to be impacted. That's right. And I think having that conversation is more intellectually honest and doesn't alienate some groups of people who would immediately turn away from, okay, don't assign a river rights.
2: I think what you're touching on there is part of what you do in design as well. And that is, it sounds counterintuitive. What I'm about to say, you might be thinking, well, shouldn't you go over to the English lit department? One of the things you figure out how to do in design is tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, communication is central to the discipline. So to take your example there, to take an, to take an idea that is just seems kind of insane... And figure out ways of, if you like, translating it into a form that um, is more... Digestible. Digestible, almost like democratic. Mm -hmm. Maybe figuring out how to communicate that visually or through um, like an installation. I'm just thinking about... um, an example that I was shown um, earlier this week where a designer had – how had he done this? It was to show how much um, energy a 100-watt bulb consumes over X number of years, which is really abstract, right? And uh, he had hung that amount of coal in the space. And it's like that. It's it's like one of those. And this is a design thing, right? It's one of those moments where you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. If you see a really clear diagram, like genes and water usage, there you go. Yeah, I see. Like those we've all seen these diagrams. These are coming from designers who have spent a lot of their time going through data that you don't want to spend <laughs> time with. They spend a lot of time reading scientific articles that you don't, or working with scientists. So very often, again, their work is like of of translation where people are doing great work that you just can't understand. I mean, you can think of other examples, right? Like um, the difference between overdosing on a prescription medicine and not might be the clarity of the designer's work in helping you figure out how many of these things you should be taking in 24 hours so again you know it's like it's it is about that sort of translation of uh important abstract difficult to access information into a into a form that we can kind of all get yeah and also touching
0: back on keller what you said about scaling I kind of see that more as not scaling objects like what things can we give because uh, cushions can be nice but I see that more as a band-aid than a cure. I see. And I think when you get off of Instagram and you start feeling mm. to the fullest extent yeah, what connections really are and yeah. not what a digital one is, yeah, you, you don't have a desire to go back. yeah, And that will become infectious over time if we can get people to hit that point where they just press delete yeah. and eventually that will scale. And I think, and I hope there is a counter culture coming back.
2: Yeah. This is the, I'm, by the way, I'm hearing this. You should, maybe you should be a designer, but I'm hearing (laughs) this more and more, this sort of idea of of a counter culture that I think maybe people are ravenous to get off um, looking at pictures of other people and to actually hang out with them people are probably ravenous not to feel like they are in a sort of 24 7 competition with other people but that we're just part of the same species and maybe just want to hang out I spend this is uh, I know we we were uh, talking about this before and uh, you know my interest in researching <laughs> the history of like the history of parties and discos and things but that's, you know, how I would defend this, that um, I know it seems like a bit of a strange use of architectural history, but it seems to me that um, when, when you look at the history of architecture, it's not just about the buildings themselves, which take these interesting forms. But you've probably experienced it yourself, where if you've been to an amazing club an amazing party, and the outside—you wouldn't even know there was anything going on on the inside. It's just like that place. Are you should have got the right address, <laughs> <laughs> and then you open the door, and you're immersed in a in a situation with absolute strangers. Uh, but you know, feels feels nice and safe, and it's probably not even a space that even makes any sense to start photographing and uploading. In fact, if you're doing that, you're not really there, mm. right? To be there is to be there, not to be looking at it. And I think that we are going to see more and more people demanding that type of relationship with others rather than one where we feel like we're constantly competing to uh, exchange compelling images of ourselves. That's crazy stuff, right? Just a lot easier to curate. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I, think, I think making
1: that individual emotional tick is a lot easier than the party and creating
2: the, the group emotional environment. It is. It is. And, and as well, like the, the thing as well over, about individualism, I think is super interesting. I, th- I think a lot about this, you know, you just, where you were talking there about the possibility of individual control over the individual image. And you've got all these tools on these apps that you know you can sort of reshape your face a bit, and and you feel like I'm I'm in control now. My hunch is we're entering a phase of design now where we're into something much more complex. Mm. Um, what does it feel like? How do you design once you've let go a bit when you're not quite in control? Where maybe what is happening is collective. So to get back to my thing about the history of parties, which I know sounds nuts, but that's okay. You know, there are some people, it seems to me, and I would even think of them as, I mean, they're not designers exactly, but what they were doing was a sort of design. There were amazing party impresarios. The example that I keep getting stuck on, and I sort of, I'm aware that people might think that, that I've really lost the plot at this point. One of the great parties of all time was a thing uh, called The Loft in lower Manhattan in the 70s, run by a guy called David Mancuso. If you ask a D, de- if you say the name David Mancuso to a DJ, they're like, Yeah, I am not worthy <laughs> because Mancuso f- kind of figured out modern DJing. How do you actually keep the room up hour after hour? So he was doing that. But more than that, he was thinking about what is like a safe space. And so he opened his own loft where he lived as a party space once a week. And people would come round. It's like the original disco. And people would come round, and they would hardly see Mancuso. He would be behind all of this stereo gear. He'd he'd spent his own money on incredibly expensive audiophile-quality sound, because he knew that that was going to be more immersive. And he'd spent all the rest of his money on records that he knew was going to sort of keep, keep the crowd moving. If you look up The Loft by David Mancuso, you will find almost no photographs. Because why would you be there taking photographs because you you're there, and uh famously, the space was super inclusive, and so it was uh multiracial multigender and so on, and uh people would just go there and hang out multi class i Maybe it wasn't that good, but this is it. this is yeah. my this is this is my romantic reading in retrospect, and I think it offers a certain. Oh, I know how I, I'm remembering now how we got onto that. It's about that thing about control. So Mancuso has control, but he doesn't have control. Mm. Mm-hmm. That takes a certain. Because as well, it is in the hands of the crowd. Like, what is that relationship? Between the DJ and the crowd, there's uh, there's that's super complex. Yeah. There's a book I read once. I'm
0: pretty sure it's called "The Way of the Peaceful Warrior." And one of the lines it says, "You have to lose your mind to come to your senses." Talk about the mind being the controlling aspect mm. of your life, like the brain, the conscious, the logical, mm. and when you could drop that, and you can start to come to your senses. Mm you can actually be connected and feel and be present.
2: This is one of the things maybe that designers have to pay attention to. I've got some colleagues who think, who, who think that design is principally super logical, super rational. There was a time when um, designers were hoping to isolate what they called design methods that no matter what the problem was, there was a sort of scientific procedure that you could work through, and you would end up in the, with the correct design result. Sort of modelled on the scientific method. That you've got to get your data, you do your testing, you kind of prototype, da 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 um, At the other end of the discipline, there are folks who it's just like, you know, it's just intuition, it's just feeling. Um... And it's funny, even in this department, we have kind of both extremes. It, there's an exhibition downstairs right now of shoes that are basically unwearable. <laughs> and, you know, we were, we were showing um, university donors through the department a week or two ago. And I'm like, I wonder what they're going to make of the, uh, the shoe exhibition. <laughs> so the, our poor donors, you know, were exposed to presentations that at, that at one end were really kind of scientific it's like, we've got all the data, we know what we're doing here. And, this is and then in the next room, there are all these unwearable shoes. The relationship between letting go of the mind and actually getting the mind back. Honestly, I would say that um, that's probably part of the designer's mindset how you know you you colour outside the lines and then back inside the lines again like and if you look at a lot of designers i mean the one that we probably a lot of us know about is steve jobs guy was kind of kind of a weird guy i mean probably the last person you would imagine being a huge success as a designer because he was kind of a bit spaced out and that ebb and flow between
0: consciously crafting something, being logical, being more in touch with mm. just being present. Mm. That I, it, it takes me back to that same idea of like the party, the disco, the DJ in control. Mm. A lot of the partygoers losing control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like that's the dance of life in a lot of ways. Of yeah where am I in control, where am I not in control, and you will never be fully in control, and you also probably won't, you're never going to be fully out of control either.
2: So, um, it's almost like the beginning of the conversation, actually, about uh, what we said about design at the beginning of the conversation, trying to define it, and the difficulty defining it, because, yeah. you know, we're, we've are fluctuated between thinking, "Oh, we got this," Yeah. <laughs> and, and other times, like, "Yeah, we." Funnily enough, this is th- what I'm about to say is unbelievably depressing. <laughs> but it's kind of important, I think, in the history of design. It's easy to forget. There, w- there was a, a movement in lots of fields, but especially design and architecture in the first half of the 20th century called modernism. And modernism really said, look, again, we've got this. We can have a universal standard of living all over the world uh, with rational cities and um, rational universities and schools and processes and factories. and, And this is what has sort of led to a lot of the modern world being, you know, based around grids and technology and whatever. And truly, it was thought that this was the sort of the road to freedom for everybody. And in a sense, you know, that mode of modernization ran more and more out of control. This is the depressing bit. Insofar as by the time we have like hit the Second World War, these processes of control are out of control. Mm. Like, it's, it's like, yeah, through technology, through science, look how many people we can kill now. This is incredible. We can have death camps. Um, we can have atomic bombs. And after the Second World War, a lot of designers and design theorists were like, whoa, um, that was too much control. Uh, we're going to have to learn to let go a little bit again. And that's probably been the culture of design sort of in the last half century or so. You know, how can we continue to uh, shape the world uh, without uh, becoming control freaks? Do
0: you think we are going too far now in letting go with some of these conversations of Let's give river the rights they deserve.
2: I personally don't think so. I'm I I, I I'm starting to think. Uh, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. I've always I've always thought of rivers and just looked at rivers and thought. I just want to let that thing be. I actually don't want to do anything with it. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I. I'm kind of ready for it. Um, But what I was also thinking with your question is the dilemma that we're at now in granting autonomy to the systems of control. We're recording this, whatever it is, early 2023. That is the date, isn't it? And. You know, we're all talking about AI now. There, that's kind of. The, I'm more. I'm way more worried about AI having being being allowed it's, to do its own thing than I am rivers doing doing its own doing their own thing. Although I say this, I've got a friend who I respect greatly, and um, he's cleverer than me as well, which is annoying. <laughs> who, when I get get on this tear, or anybody gets on this stuff about AI. He says, you've been watching too many sci-fi movies. But I don't know. I am a I am kind of like um a little concerned that um we need to think about what our technology is um is serving and Thankfully, one of our most recent hires in the department is a designer with expertise around AI, and uh, she'll be rolling out uh, classes soon around that. It's very interesting. That'd be
1: cool. Yeah, it's funny. I know a lot of my friends that are more artistic. When we talk about AI, they kind of have similar trepidations. Yeah. But then when we talk to our STEM friends, or when we've talked to professors in STEM, we bring up AI. They love it. They're, they think That's right, it's a yeah. path to creativity. Yeah, because it it takes away the energy they have to spend doing the menial things. Yeah, and frees them up to then take creativity into a field that might not traditionally be seen as creative. Whereas with art, I guess it's harder to see how it plays in in as clear of a method. I guess.
2: Yeah. Well, I think. Um I know a lot of designers are kind of thrilled with AI right now because it is like having your own sort of collaborator in the room. It's just like, well, you know, if I... Now, this has been probably a long time coming, by the way, in some fields of design, that AI is... Let's say you're an architect. If you're an architect, then AI is in some ways, um, the next stage of what we were calling parametric design. When there was like this huge digital revolution in architecture in the 80s and especially the 1990s. It's so big that, um, in a way, we should all know about it. The field of architecture kind of went almost overnight from people still drawing buildings with pens on tracing paper to doing things on CAD, and as the software got more and more sophisticated, architects realised that you know it was kind of unpredictable. Uh, there was this sort of digital revolution in, in architecture, and so you suddenly had this potential to kind of make any shape that you wanted. If you if you've, I'll put it this way: if you notice, most buildings up until the 1990s are boxes. Since the 1990s, we've kind of been able to do anything. If you think about, let's say, the architecture of Frank Gehry, if you think about uh, the Guggenheim in Bilbao or the Walt Disney uh, concert hall, Gehry, who was early in on digital technologies, was like, wait, what? Not only could he model the shapes, but he could get them manufactured because you send the data to the construction folks and then in turn a lot of the cutting is being done robotically and so suddenly you can have all of these regular forms and you know he was an architect who thought a lot about kind of like the the freedom that technology was going to give him now he he found a sweet spot where he was thinking like a sculptor he would um get cardboard and paper and scrumple it and like that's that's quite a good shape right and then show it to the computer the computer would scan it it's like okay well we'll we'll do your building like that then frank and i think for a lot of architects i think ai is going to be something like that right now that it's like okay ai so supposing you know um Really really interested in a, a, In a shape that is um, half um, half iguana <laughs> um, Half turnip. What do you think and and out it comes? Um, I Think it will result in a lot of really awful architecture to tell you the truth, but it'll be funny <laughs> um, That's probably not the AI that 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 in this department we should be worried about that'll be hilarious the, the AI that we need to be worried about in this department is just going to be like rudimentary sorts. Like, I'm just imagining in this building, for example, um, carrying keys is such a drag, right? And um, you could you could absolutely imagine being here in 10 years' time and AI, you know, they, it's like, oh, hi, Cy. Uh, yeah, I'll open the door for you. And then the, you know, then it comes in, um, you come in, I don't know, the next morning you've had a, you've had a haircut and it's like, I don't think you're Simon. You know, it's just like, well, I am. Well, I don't think you are. And it, it's at that point that you think that, okay, now we re- now how, how am I going to persuade the building? <laughs> yeah. That I should be allowed in. What do I do? Yeah. Kind of going
0: back to the middle part of that last answer, I'm going to pose another unanswerable question. (laughs) Do we make the environment or does the environment make us? Because when you start talking about what Frank was able to do with the technology, it's that technology was the key that unlocked so much.
2: Yeah. So this is an old, um, it's a pretty old uh, question in Uh, design and architecture and it's like it's chicken and egg really it's a version of the chicken and egg Um, this is one of those uh, moments where I found myself to my horror quoting Winston Churchill (laughs) 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 who apart from being uh, an insufferable imperialist I suppose you know if you're a Brit then you do think, well, you know he got us to the second World War, but he was a terrible man in some ways, but this 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 that you know he had this um famous comment, you know, first we make our buildings then our buildings make us mm. and that was actually it sounds like philosophy, but it was quite a concrete thing after the second World War. I think the story is that um the 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 main chamber of the House of Commons had been bombed by the Luftwaffe. And the debate was, well, you know, do we build it as it was? Or do we build it properly this time? Insofar as there was never space. There was never enough space. If you see uh, that chamber when all the MPs are present, there's not enough seats. People are standing up. If you come from the United States and you you sort of see it in comparison with the Congress here, it just looks completely crazy. Why isn't there a seat for everybody? But Churchill and other folks at the time said, no, let's just build it as it was. And their reasoning was that um, British parliamentary democracy had evolved in part because of the nature of that room. That it's Kind of up close and personal. Um, that it's actually claustrophobic when it's full, and that you know you couldn't, in a sense, um, just phone it in. You've got to be really present. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a nice example of the of of that idea that um, of reciprocation you know we set up the design then the design sets us up it's probably a loop mhm um, something that um i'm involved in again now i'm in a a research group that is looking again at um uh a science that was called cybernetics and cybernetics studied feedback loops mhm And we are thinking that um, there are some versions of cybernetics that are probably worth revisiting and trying to figure out a way of describing cybernetic ideas to students. And look, you know, one reason for doing that might be around... Some of the things we've been, you know, talking about this afternoon. Um, let's go straight for the biggest example: climate change. Yeah, we set this up. Um, now we're going to have to live with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if we're going to have a better future, and as um, indigenous thinkers are now reminding designers let's not just think about how the environment will reciprocate with us i don't know in six months or a year let's think in terms of seven generations in seven generations time what is the consequence of our decision now because as we know a lot of these things are super long term So, you know, to answer your question, I think it is reciprocal. I think context is super important. I think, you know, that approach and design as something that is reciprocal kind of gets us out of ourselves. We remember that we're in this all together. Um, that We've got to figure out a way of living with each other. And we've got to figure out... um a way of uh, how we are setting up the world uh, for people we don't yet know and that we will never know. Uh, Gosh, that's a moral problem that's up there kind of with the river, right? Should you care about people in seven generations? biologically (laughs) yeah like it's funny
0: because you can take the biological approach like that is your lineage your dna like i should care what are what is life doing but trying to reproduce and pass on their dna and then we also had another person we recorded with who said well your dna alters enough that seven generations out might not be much like you <laughs> oh really yeah oh how fun but that begs a whole different conversation
2: yeah yeah i think it's okay to think about people not like me <laughs> yeah i
1: think so and i also think like if we're looking at the history of i think a lot of the really beautiful buildings i've seen mm-hmm. they're probably thinking a couple of generations ahead because it probably took them couple of generations oh, to make yeah. these buildings. Oh, yeah. And I think I mean, that's something I'd I like to touch on a little bit too is the history of architecture, mm. which is, you know, a large part of your research. Mm. What is that broadly and what are its impacts? And especially what are its impacts for people that don't consider themselves to be artists
2: or don't consider themselves to be designers? Mm. Why should they care? Mm. That thing about um, thinking about kind of like uh, design over time. Uh, the example that always makes me laugh um, is if you go to Milano, Milan in Italy, they, they're they still trying to fix the cathedral. Hmm. It's just like this permanent project. It took them 500 years to finish it. So that was a way in which architecture actually helped to sort of bind the Milanese together over, indeed, over, over those seven generations. And... You know, maybe now in architecture we kind of a bit we are a bit too impulsive. It's like, yeah, we've got to get this up by next year, and we've got to maximise the revenue from this building, you know, within five years, and so on. And that um, there are other moments in the history of architecture where people were really thinking much, much more long term. Especially when you think how short their lives were. Like, if you started a cathedral in the Middle Ages. Chances were you weren't gonna get mate. you weren't gonna get much past 30 or 40 anyway. Mm-hmm. And yet you knew you were starting a project that was gonna take at least a hundred years. That you wouldn't probably if you if you really went at it, you might see the foundations. What an amazing kind of a way of approaching design, just like just to say the foundations of uh of um something that's uh, you know coming. Um, in the future but was your, your question was about like whether we should whether we should all be sort of getting into design and not so much getting in and
1: participating but why it impacts everybody I think a lot of not a lot but there are, are students and are people out there that consider the, themselves oh I'm a math person or I'm I'm a person X and I as a result of that don't need to care yeah or simply turn themselves off to those perspectives. Yeah. Why is it important to not do that? To yeah. open yourself up to those perspectives and to look around you and try to see why those things mattered. Yeah. Why did they make the decisions they made? Yeah. Especially, you know, looking at the time frame. I think that's something we really could benefit from now is there's yeah. such a need for instant gratification. Yeah. And I remember growing up, there was a building and it took them seven years to build. And I was like, oh my, when is this building gonna be finished? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the the idea that it could take 700 years for something to be built is just inconceivable for people in our generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it's more, yeah, why? Why should they care?
2: Well, now, um, what I'm about to say is um, is incredibly reckless for me as chair of design. And it's because our biggest problem in the department or one of them, is we have too many students wanting to do design. And the university cannot afford the sort of resources for this number of students to do design. Now, why do so many students want to do design? Well, you know, it's kind of a cool discipline, and it could result in kind of a, you know, a cool job. But also, you know, I think a lot of students are curious about design because they're interested in how things get done, how the stuff get made. How do you get changes done? And what is reckless for me to say as chair of design is that part of me thinks that we should add design to the general education requirements of the university. In part, so that we can all be... Reminded how hard it is to get things done. Um, To salute people who get things done and made and changed. The patience that that is often required. The negotiation. The encounter with regulation. With persuasion, the picking up of skills. So I think you know that design is um an amazing kind of core competency a bit like kind of you know literature or or uh, math so there's that you know you, you might remember that I was saying earlier that I got interested in architecture and design not only because I like the way that it looks, and I was curious about why it makes us feel the way it does, but because I think of it as a type of politics, that we cannot have a sort of transparent democratic society if we um, are not cognizant of where things are coming from and how things are done and who's doing it. That, in a sense, what we live with is a commonwealth. This is all of our business. Let's say, take this this question of AI. You really want to leave all of this to other people. Let's say, take the question of climate change. You really want to leave that to other people. You don't want to be in any way involved. We've all absolutely got to be involved. You know, I think as well there's kind of like other... um. We talk a lot about, like, design thinking. That's a term that's receding a little bit in the discipline. It was really hot, though, uh, for sort of 10, 15 years. Design thinking became um, a popular mode of training, not just in design, but in things like government, um, as a way of problem-solving. And it did have some really good uses. Like, you'd go into an organisation that maybe is working okay... But, you know, you're used to a certain way of doing things, and if you want to get it done, then you've got to go and call that department, and they may say no. And design thinking said, well, let's put all the stakeholders in the room, and let's see if there's a better way of getting things done. So one of the outcomes of that was um, it allowed people in organizations to see the organization differently, to maybe kind of see colleagues for the first time to find out what people did for the first time, to kind of get whiteboards up and post-it notes out and to actually kind of have that exhilaration of saying, well, what if, you know, is it really so hard? You know, could we not just do X instead of Y? So that would be an example of design thinking where designers would lead folks into rethinking the way things are. And I think that is at at core, you know, kind of a move towards a certain sort of democracy and a certain sort of transparency. This is where I'll go a bit heavy, though, as well. I also think that if you're interested in design, potentially it's a sort of moral lesson as well. The one that I think about um, a lot is, um, by the way, I'm sort of notorious for doing this in classes and whatever, I pull my stupid iPhone out because it's like the object lesson of our time, right? Mm -hmm. And you could apply it to the iPhone, but of course you can apply it to any number of of devices that are using batteries, rare earth metals. You know, if we're going to not, think about how things are designed, manufactured, what sort of relationships they build with each other. We were talking earlier about, let's say, you know, the potential toxicity of social media and so on in sort of separating us and giving giving us weird relationships with each other. The one that I keep coming back to is, what the heck is my relationship to the people who made this? While I'm enjoying consuming it, Um, I do have to reflect, it seems to me, on what it took to sort of bring this into the world and for me to be enjoying it. And there's, once you know what is behind this, there's no way of not knowing it. Mm. And there's no easy answers. I think, you know, we were probably made aware maybe a decade ago of the conditions of labor in actually manufacturing these things. But since then, maybe we've become more aware of, in a way, sort of greater horrors uh, with the mining of cobalt for mm-hmm. batteries and rare earth metals, in which there's no clean cobalt supply. There's no cobalt supply where we can say, absolutely for sure, there's no kids involved in mining this. So, you know, a very, very roundabout question uh, answer to your question, I think there's two reasons that... Design should be everybody's business. One is because it is a... It's actually your your right as, as, as a member of this species. We are designers, right? This is something we do. We've got symbolic culture. We've got languages and diagrams and whatever. We've got this tool culture. We have, in a way that most species cannot imagine, the ability to change things. It's your right as a human being to be a designer. It is something that binds us. Um, it's something that can make us more or less toxic to be around each other. But as I say, I think there's this other thing that's like a, uh, this would be a, another conversation entirely. The history of design and ethics. Mm. A lot of designers start started as ethicists. Yeah. Um, where they're like, gosh, um, poverty is terrible or disease is terrible. What am I going to do about it? And they got into design to try and manage it. The ethical thing, I think, you know, once you know about a little bit about design, it is a way in which you can reflect a little bit more about, um, you know, like those poor folks in the Congo, what am I doing? You know, why am I, why have I got this phone? Hearing
0: your answer really started making me think. And it really, the way I see it, it's designs that process. It's the dance, it's mm. the dance between control and lack of control. The, mm. You adopt that mindset of how do we do this? Why? What do we need to change? How do I control it? And then. I feel like a lot of people stop or you take on the mindset of how do I let go? How do I lose control? And I don't think enough people are connecting part one and part two. Mm. You said earlier about the buildings that are super square and just how do I maximize revenue Mm. on that building? And then, I feel like that's the control mm. and then the lack of control is how do I give rivers rights everywhere mm-hmm. and I think both of those are flawed because you're you're not really because I especially if you look at the maximizing revenue on the building it's I can promise you you're not and look at Steve Jobs because mm. when you start going he made the interesting buildings the interesting landscapes the inter- interesting office spaces to allow people to be creative and think better mm. and that is what actually maximized revenue <laughs> and getting out of that box making a circle. Mm. And I think that is kind of the more it's recognizing that it's the give, the take, and combining those mm. is that's what's applicable when you say like who is it for and why it's for everyone, mm. is because no that isn't restricted to a discipline. Yeah. So if it were to be part of the core curriculum. I think that could do a lot of very interesting and beneficial, powerful things.
2: you know it's so it's kind of like a critical critical awareness, a critical consciousness. I've sometimes thought, you know actually design, you know how we at the university we 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 teach critical thinking, so if you're in a, in the sciences, it's like, okay, is this actually kind of true? Like I'm going to construct an experiment here, I'll test it. And I've got an hypothesis. The experiment will confirm whether it's right or wrong. It's a sort of critical thinking. Are things true? Then there's um, another area of critical thinking, which says, could things be different? Could things be better? That's kind of like more the other side of campus, arts, humanities, social sciences. And that's where I think of design maybe as a sort of critical thinking, but it's like applied. In which you're looking at situations, very often in collaboration, and saying, you know, could this be different? Could this be better? Or even, is it true? Like, let's say, Mm. sometimes when designers are... um I've got a colleague in the department who works in a, uh, I cannot even tell you how seriously controversial uh, the area that he works in. It's around electoral transparency and electoral process and making sure that people can vote. And (laughs) for sure, um, in a very urgent and... um, dangerous way he's asking, you know, let's say with elections, you know, are these outcomes true? Could they be different? Could they be better? So that's again where I think, you know, and I love this idea of the dance as well, because you realize that figuring this stuff out is really, really complex. One of the terrible things that designers eventually have to accept is they're mostly not going to get their way. They can see it. But they can't, They can't. you know, they can't get there. There are all these parameters. I was talking to a grad student earlier this week, and he's like, well, I haven't got anything for you. And I'm like, that's fine. I said, well, we'll just check in. How's the project going? And he said, well, the problem is that I know I could go this direction, this direction, or this direction. And I cannot do all of these directions at once. I mean, it's kind of you know, how, you're going to end up with an existential crisis. Like, I can see what can be done. Uh, so you have to sort of accept this idea of it being a dance. It is, design is mostly kind of fuzzy. But, it has to be said, so often it results in something where where a critical mass of people stand around and it's like, In fairness, though, that is (laughs) kind of (laughs) cool. Like, you know, one way or another, I can't explain, but those are really cool shoes, you know, or uh, uh, one way or another, um, that's a really nice kind of resolution of that information. You've helped me understand something that I didn't understand before. You just said as the designer, you're most likely not going to get what you want. Yeah.
0: And that reminded me of like one of my favorite poems, "O, oh me, oh life by Walt Whitman. Hmm. And it's, I take it as more like the whole front half is him. What's like the point of life? Like, mm. what are we doing? Mm. And he's puts in answer like that. You are here that life exists and identity that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Yeah. It's not that you can contribute your exact verse, the verse, it's a verse. Mm. And like, just because it doesn't turn out the way you think or you want or how you hope it should, the fact that it turns out is the beautiful part.
2: Absolutely. I think as well, sometimes you have to think about like the alternative. What, do nothing? Yeah. Just sort of drift. Just accept yeah. things. Don't push back at all. Um, but then, in you know, in terms of what you've done, if you were in uh, some of my colleagues' courses uh, where they talk about the importance in design of iteration and prototyping, for example. But iteration. In iteration, what, what we mean by that in design is that... Um, Mostly, what you do in design is only an in between stage. It's on the way to something. And, you know, maybe that's a way of kind of letting go. It's like, well, in fact, if you think, I mean, there are some sort of things that we do in design where, like, that's it. Like, you finish a pyramid and that's it. I mean, it's going to fall down eventually or get robbed or whatever, <laughs> but that's it. We're done. But if you think about a lot of design now, um, you know that there's another phone coming. Mm -hmm. You know that there's another, in fact, I've got like a big red number on my phone right now telling me there's yet another update that I've got to uh, uh, download. It's iterative. And, you know, maybe that's a way of kind of like letting go as well. It's like, look, it's it's the sort of dance of life thing. Um, uh, This is interim, 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 interim. We've talked about a lot of ideas
1: today. Oh yeah, a lot of them <laughs> intangible, and I hope that the listeners were able to grasp yeah. some of it. Pull listeners, but could you talk about some actionable things students could do on campus or broadly to get involved in design? Maybe here at UC Davis, or just broadly, students that want to do design. What what advice do you have to them? To them,
2: um. Something actionable. Um, I mean, I can think of sort of immediate, sort of actionable things that I can see students doing. Um, If we were to go downstairs here, we would find students trying to figure out ways of improving the life uh, cycle of materials before they go into landfill you know, do they have second, third uses? You know, is there a way in which we can make things that are more durable so that they don't go into landfill? Um, As we look out the window here, we have our new courtyard in the department and what might just look like plants, ornamental plants growing, are um, plants that from which we're going to be uh sourcing natural dyes mm-hmm. that could be more sustainable or just you know different i mean maybe they'll behave differently in textiles so you know there are these sort of immediate uh tangible things uh uh that happen um if i th- so often when i go down to um the studios i see things that um I don't know. That it's just like it's just like you're sort of seeing a little bit into the future. Um, We have our MFA master's presentations at the end of the year. And I remember coming out of last year's thinking, wow, what a privilege. I've just seen slightly into the future. Uh, There was a, a, a museum designer, exhibition designer who was figuring out new ways of arranging museums that involved more stakeholders, people who didn't usually go to museums, or people who felt misrepresented in museums and ways in which they are involved. That's immediate. He's now at SF MoMA. That's happening. There was another presentation about ways in which Design interfaces and software products could um, be more supportive of like mental health. Uh, that designer is now working with Headspace in 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 Silicon Valley. That's happening. That that's on. So you know that's so. So uh, as as uh, as students who've. Gone through the program and are coming out the other end. You know, some of them do suddenly find themselves like, "Oh, wow, I'm actually sort of semi in in charge of the world here now." <laughs> that suddenly happened. Um, so I don't know whether that answers 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 the question.
1: Yeah, I I, th- I think it does. I I guess the main takeaway is to have these thoughts and to put them out. Because if you don't, you might not get that guy at Headspace that's, hey, we wanna wanna build on that. Or you might not get the Momo that says, hey, we wanna show that to everyone else. You need to not only come up with these ideas, but find a way to put them out in a way that you are comfortable with Mm. But they can also be communicated mm. to a large amount
2: of people, so that it can be reciprocated. Mm. We had a speaker in the department uh, last week, and um, she was an architect, who professional architect, who became more and more kind of interested in and concerned by the relationship between architecture and communities. And her career took a turn where she became fully and completely committed to community involvement and DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. And so her design has become a sort of social design in which she figures out ways in which communities can be involved in building and, um, and planning decisions. Now, that's already kind of like, wow, and she's doing it. And you can start to see, well look, I mean, maybe there's all sorts of des- processes and decisions that I'm involved in where I could be thinking about, or I could be studying ways of uh, collaborating better with other people. And after the uh, talk, uh, a student put their hand up and said something that was sort of so amazing, I wrote it down. She kind of synthesized what she'd heard. And she said, Well, this, was, this is a this fantastic talk, she says. And the student was speaking, I think, you know, she would have identified as um, a woman of color. And what she could see was that something that she'd always felt, it wasn't just in her head, it was real, that there are some spaces to which she feels like she belongs and others that don't. And basically, as she put it, a sense of belonging when you go into a building or a room or a party is embodied spatial knowledge. In other words, through your body, you have a knowledge of the space. And I, that seemed to be so powerful. Like that, not that a question we could be asking? of anywhere that we go like does this feel right and if you think as well about like the the uh implications of that for kind of like fairness and inclusion but the degree to which that seems like as immediate as anything being attentive to whether things feel okay and if they don't feel okay um There's probably stuff we can do.
0: In theme of this episode, I'm going to pose one last question.
2: Go on then. How do you want to end it? Me? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How do I want to end this? How do other people... Do you you ask other people this or... No. No. (laughs) Um... Yeah, this is, I, I, I never, I'm very, very bad on endings and uh, closure. But I will, I, maybe I'll try this, and that is that I've kind of been interested now in architecture and uh, design for, like, my adult life. As I was saying, there was that moment when I got into that seminar room uh as a student of design, and I was just like, wow, I never thought I could get away with studying something that's so interesting. It doesn't feel like work. So I've spent like several decades since then getting more and more into it. The way I would end it is um, that in that time, this field has never been more interesting. I think I went through a phase where I thought, well, I'm kind of done now. I've, asked, I've answered most of the questions I wanted to do. I'll just, um, I'll just phone it in the rest of my career and uh, I should be fine, get to the pension, and then we're out the other end. Mm. <laughs> now, um, um, it's like, wow, this is... And it's precisely because of the scale and the complexity of the challenges that we're facing, but also, it seems to me, the willingness of people to try and figure this out. I mean, I sound very trendy saying this, <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway. Like, race, patriarchy, ecology, um, inequity. Put in these things at the centre of the design discipline is unbelievably interesting, and it gives it an urgency that um, that I, I'm really kind of energised by. After this interview, I'm going home, I'll check my mail and whatever, but I'm going to finish this weekend reading a book that came out this week by um, a dean of design... In Canada, in Ontario, and she's called Dori Tunstall. And the book came out this week called "Decolonizing Design. And honestly, um, you, you read it and you just think, wow, I mean, this is, a, this, is a, this is a moment when we can be kind of fixing this stuff. Her very existence as a dean of design, as she points it out, points out, oh, by the way, I'm the first black woman to be a dean of design ever anywhere. Actually, I think she thinks she she believes she might be the first black dean of design anywhere ever, period. Mm. And that's important, but she's doing cluster hires of indigenous people, cluster hires of black people. So in other words, she can change things now, and she can bring in different sorts of voices, different sorts of viewpoints, and feeling the center of gravity of the discipline move as we start to ask all over again, what sort of world do we want to live in? How, this is a a phrase of of mine that I got from Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer, we're all here. How do we figure out how we all fit in? How are we going to be all here? without wanting to sort of, I don't know, kill each other or own each other. And that you can now, that I'm now free to go into my classes and do a history of architecture in which I can put that question at the front. Just say, to what extent did all of this stuff make us more whole? Or did it do the opposite when we built all of these walls and windows did it put us together or did it, did it mess us up? And what do we learn from that? And, um, what a privilege. Great.
0: Thank you. Professor Sadler. (laughs) Thank you. It's been wonderful. My last thing, all I heard on that last one is how do you contribute your verse? My verse, what to the the dance or to the poem, the poem I referenced earlier. It's, how do you contribute your verse that you are here? Now, how
2: do you contribute your verse? You know, we were talking about parties Mm. and, um, I'm, I'm really, there's, there's so many other people I want to dance with. That's what I'm waiting for. Yeah. Um, I want to be allowed to dance with different sorts of people. That's, that's my thing. So it's not like a verse that I want to contribute so much. It's just being, um, you know, scripting stuff with other people in, in, in new ways. That's the, that's the bit that I want to do. There you have it. All right. Thank you. To
1: continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.